Hello, ladies and gentlemen. This is Dan Trotter. Pretty good Bible studies in this audio. I intend to cover Second, First Timothy chapter two, verses one through seven. Our context is this: Paul in chapter one had talked about how Jesus Christ had come to save sinners, and he used to be a horrible sinner. So he gave some examples of how awful he was and how Jesus saved him and showed mercy and so forth. And then he warns against false teachers, Hymenaeus and Alexander, hyperpreterist, neo-hyperpreterist heretics at that time in the 60s in Ephesus. Now he goes to chapter 2 and he's going to urge Timothy to pray for all people. I'm going to entitle this section and verses 1 through 7 of this section, Praying for All sorts of people, all categories of people. So we start now in verses 1 and 2 of Second Timothy. First Timothy chapter 2, Paul says this, First of all, then, I urge that petitions, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for everyone, for kings and all those who are in authority, so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. Notice Paul starts out, first of all, he says, first of all, what's the first thing he, that he urges? I urge that petitions be made for everyone. Notice how important prayer was, prayer for other people besides himself. That's how important prayer was to Paul, extremely important, first of all. Now, I didn't go through and find all the scriptures where Paul asked people to pray for other people. It would be a great Bible study, but it would be so many verses that it would eat up all our time. However, I did look up the verses where Paul says we need to make our prayers to God with thanksgiving. Now, this is kind of interesting because I found, let's see, how many? Five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve verses. I'm going to read them to you real fast so you'll get a feel for how much Paul expects us to give thanks to God for all that he's done for us. 1 Corinthians 14, 16, Otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, he's talking about speaking in tongues, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen, amen to your thanksgiving? So when we pray in tongues, we are thanking God. 2 Corinthians four fifteen, For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. God likes thanksgiving. Second Corinthians 9.11, you will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. Talking about being generous makes people thanksgiving, thankful to God when they receive money. Second Corinthians 9.12, for the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. Paul serves, people get blessed, and they thank God. God likes this. Ephesians 5, 4, Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. Philippians 4, 6, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God. Colossians, Colossians 2, 7, Rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Colossians 4.2, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. 1 Thessalonians 3.9, for what thanksgiving can we return to God for you for all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God? 1 Timothy 2.1, first of all, then I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. 1 Timothy 4.3, talking about Heretics who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. There's a sanction for saying the blessing before the meal, by the way. Food is to be received as thanksgiving. It's not a slam dunk, but it's an indication 
that we might do that to thank God for the very food that we eat. First Timothy 4, 4, for everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. So everything that we get from God, I think these verses clearly show we need to be thankful to God. Thank him every day for the every breath that you take because that air doesn't have to be here. And that safety and security that you've had, it doesn't have to be here. Look at this coronavirus pandemic. You don't know when the bottom is going to fall out. You don't know when there's going to be a war, a nuclear war, uh, an electrical attack, attack on the electrical grid, a pulse attack. You don't know. Nobody knows. We better thank God that we're even here. Now, Paul says that these petitions and prayers and intercessions and thanksgiving should be made for everyone. That doesn't mean we're supposed to pray for everyone in the world. But it includes people like this, according to John Gill, saints, churches, Christian workers, relatives, friends, fellow city dwellers, fellow countrymen, and even enemies. So Paul is talking about categories. Everyone be pray for people in every kind of category. He's going to list some categories here, starting with kings. Before I get into that, though, let's ask the question, why would some professing Christians look down on all who weren't Christians? Or, excuse me, let, let me ask the question this way. Why would Paul urge that everyone be prayed for? All these different categories would be prayed for. Well, Jameson Fawcett and Brown speculates is that there in Ephesus, Ephesus, there were some professing Christians who looked down on all who weren't Christians. We're saved and you're not. And Paul is trying to teach them humility. Just because you're a king, your ruler is not saved. You need to pray for him. Perhaps. I don't know. But at any rate, it means every category of person, not every individual person. Think about the impracticality of praying for, what is it now, six, five and a half billion people on the planet? I can't pray for all everybody on the planet. I can hardly pray for the people I know. What Paul is talking about here is talking about praying for different categories. He mentions some starting in verse 2 for kings and all those who are in authority. Now, praying for kings and those who are in authority was a good thing for Paul to say because Christianity is a revolutionary doctrine. I mean, we we have no king but Jesus. Ultimately, Jesus is our king, and so Paul had to constantly guard against the revolutionary implications of Christianity because once the civil authorities start thinking that Christianity is a political movement, oh God, boom, the political authorities were going to come down on the church so hard the church would be snuffed out. And so Paul says things like this. You pray for these kings that are in authority. Don't go around trying to say you're going to overthrow them. Pray for them. Why? So that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life. Because the purpose of kings and all those who are in authority is to suppress riot, sedition, crime, and such that make it impossible to lead a quiet and tranquil life. Now, there's some other scriptures that show that Christians were not intent upon upsetting the civil order. Scriptures I wish the morons in communist China who were intent on persecuting the church out of existence over there, I wish they would read these verses and understand their enemy. You know, Sunzi, the great Chinese war strategist, whose work is quoted in military academies all over the world. I've read some of Sunzi. He's very interesting. One of the things he said is you need to know your enemy. Well, let me tell you something. The Chinese communists don't know their enemy. They don't know them at all. They don't understand that Christians are not intent and the Christians in China are not intent in overthrowing the Chinese government. They just aren't. I've talked to dozens of them. That they just are not interested in that. In fact, many of them are very patriotic. I even ran into one Christian that offended me because she started talking about how wonderful the communist government was. I was that our friendship didn't last too long, but because that's just an outright lie. But there's a lot of 
Christians in China who are not interested in overturning the government, and yet the government constantly spends all of its time talking about the terrible Christians and we got to throw them in jail. I know Christians who have been thrown in jail. I've roomed in a hotel room with a Christian who had been tortured by the Chinese government, physically beaten and tortured in other terrible ways. Stupid, because Christians are not intent on setting up political kingdoms on this earth. Matthew 22:21. These is the Pharisees, or Jesus' Jewish opponents, answering him. They asked him, Jesus had asked them whose head was on the coin. They responded, Caesar's, they said to him. Then he said to them, Give then to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. In Acts 17, 7, when we see the church at Thessalonica being persecuted, we see in Acts 17, 7, the Thessalonian mob coming down on Jason, a believer, coming down on his house, where the mob thought that the apostles were saying, and the mob accused the city officials here. Jason has received them as guests, received the apostles as guests. They are all acting contrary to Caesar's decree, saying there is another king, Jesus. So you see there, there's, that verse illustrates the trouble, the, the, the problem the church had. When they start talking about King Jesus, people automatically assume a political king. And no, that's not what the church was doing. Paul makes this clear in Romans 13, 1-7. Everyone must submit to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist are instituted by God. So then the one who resists the authority is opposing God's command, and those who oppose it will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Do you want to be unafraid of authority? Do what is good, and you will have its approval. For government is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, because it does not carry the sword for no reason. For government is God's servant, an avenger that brings wrath on the one who does wrong. Therefore, you must submit, not only because of wrath, but also because of your conscience. And for this reason, you pay taxes, since the authorities are God's public services continually attending to these tasks. Pay your obligations to everyone, taxes to those you owe taxes, tolls to those you owe tolls. Respect to those you owe respect and honor to those you owe honor. Now, folks, there has never ever been written a passage more non-revolutionary or anti-revolutionary than those first seven verses of Romans 13. And so Paul is saying, pray for the rulers. Don't start political rebellions. That would have been the end of the church if that had happened. And not only expedient reasons like that should we pray for those in authority, but also we should pray seriously that they do their job, which is to create a civil society that will allow the church to operate tranquilly and quietly in a quiet life with godliness and dignity. Now, Paul's desire to see the church live a tranquil and quiet life, that seems to cut against a certain Chinese practice that I ran into dealing with the underground church in China. You would constantly run into people who would say, I don't think the church, the persecution of the church should end in China. We need to keep having persecution because persecution is what makes people believe. And now, as the persecution is slacking off, people are getting materialistic and they're leaving the church. Of course, that was before the current round of persecution from Xi Jinping, Mao Zedong, Ping, who has really cracked down on the church. But I was there before Xi Jinping started this, and things were getting a little looser, and so the church was getting starting. A lot of the church leaders were getting worried that the lack of persecution would lead to sloth in the church. And I will also point out, too, that in some areas of the world, in church history, persecution has actually snuffed out the church. You can think, for example, Persia, the first couple of centuries after the gospel got started, 
So I think we need to leave it to God whether there's going to be persecution or not. But we do have a command here to pray that the Christians live a quiet and tranquil life. We do not have a command that says, God, please send us persecution. This, in the middle of this coronavirus pandemic, pandemic, I heard reported to me about a brother, a thinking type person who thinks outside the box. He said, well, maybe we ought not to pray for the removal of this coronavirus. Maybe God has his plans. To which I reply, well, yeah, maybe God has his plans that he's going to use this thing for good, but we don't know what those are. And I need to pray that the government will help me lead a quiet and tranquil life. And I can't live a quiet and tranquil life if I got to worry about people screaming at me because I don't have a mask on. So we need to pray for a quiet and tranquil life. Now, verse 20 says that we need to pray for all those who are in authority. Now, what that means is all magistrates, whether you're the mayor, the governor, the president, I'm using American terms, but in, in the, the equivalent of Roman terms, the, the different sub-level, sub-levels of government, we need to pray for all those. It does not mean that we need to pray for all people like Adolf Hitler, Paul Pot, Mao Zedong, Xi Jinping, Mao Zedong, Ping. I'll pray for them, all right. I pray that God kicks their persecuting rear ends out of office. I pray the imprecatory psalms. I don't pray that Nancy Pelosi gets power in this country or Joe Biden. Excuse me for bringing politics into this, but I don't. I don't pray for them. They, they haven't got an authority. I pray that, that God brings justice. Now, I don't know what justice is because I'm not privy to a lot of inside stuff that goes on in Washington, D.C., but I can pray for justice, and I can when I see people advocating the murder of human beings up to the time they are born, I don't need to really know too much except that, and then I say, God, bring, smash their political teeth against the rocks. David was a king, and he prayed that way. I'm not praying for any bad physical thing to happen to these abortionists who are in charge of our government or who have been in charge of our government and who would seek to be in charge of our government who, who and who are in charge of certain portions of our government. I don't pray that they continue to be able to kill babies. I pray that they make decisions that I can lead a tranquil and quiet life. I don't have any problem from praying for them that way. But in, meanwhile, I'm praying that God would judge them and kick them out of office. So we need to be quiet. I'm, I'm, we need to be careful here. We need to be very careful, as Paul was, to show that we're not trying to start any kind of revolution. We're not trying to be disrespectful of authority. But on the other hand, we don't need to sit around and let Adolf Hitler take over again or Paul Potter, Joseph Stalin, Miles Adon. 1 Timothy 2, 3-4, Paul continues, This is good. What? Praying for everyone. When I say everyone, I mean praying for kings, for rulers, for authorities, all in authority. Praying for all different kinds of categories of people. This is good, and it pleases God our Savior. Now, that's an unusual expression, God our Savior. We usually think of Jesus being our Savior, but actually it shows up. I say it's unusual. It's not all that unusual. I've got one example right here at the very... First of First Timothy, First Timothy one one, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the command of God our Savior, and of Christ Jesus our hope. So not only is Jesus our Savior, but God, not only is the second person of the Trinity our Savior, but also the first person, God the Father, is our Savior. Now, by the way, when you say Savior, you have to think Savior from what? From our sins, from death, you know, the usual stuff that people don't admit that they got a problem with. Pleases God our Savior to pray for all these people who wants everyone to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. And the everyone there means even kings. You don't want to pray for kings because they're persecuting you. Well, God wants them to be saved too. That's why he, why he put the verse 4 there. He wants everyone to be saved, not just your buddies, your friends. He wants the kings and these nasty people that you don't like. He wants them to be saved too. Now, it doesn't mean he wants 
everyone individually to be saved. Of course, that's what Arminians love to see. God wants everybody to be saved, in which I case, and, and, and if that's the way you want to interpret that, I respond, okay, so God doesn't get what he wants, huh? The sovereign, omniscient God of the universe doesn't get what he wants. No, what Paul is saying here, don't discriminate against kings. He wants people from every category to be saved. John Gill agrees with me on this. He's a Calvinist. He said this does not mean that God wants every man individually to be, to be saved because that would mean God's will would be, would be frustrated. He wants all sorts of men to be saved, referring back to verse 1, kings and others in authority. And Gill adds, kings and peasants, rich and poor, bonded free, male and female, young and old, greater and lesser sinners, Jews and Gentiles, all kinds of people. It doesn't mean every individual person because that would mean that God didn't get what he wanted. Here's some other uses of the word everyone that it's talking about categories and not individuals. Romans 5.18, So then, as through one trespass there is condemnation for everyone, so also through one righteous act there is life-giving justification for everyone. Oh, does that mean everybody gets saved? No, it means no matter where you are. If you're an outer Mongolian or you're from Australia or New Zealand or even California, it doesn't matter where you're from. There's life-giving justification for you. It means for every category of people. It doesn't mean there's life-giving justification for every person on the earth because we are not universalist. If we've got any sense and know how to read the Bible, we're not universalist. Titus 2.11, For the grace of God has appeared with salvation for all people. Salvation for all people. That means Jews, Gentiles, South Carolinians, Frenchmen, Englishmen, Chinese, Australian, Japanese. It doesn't mean everyone individually. Now, let me read you an Arminian. I need to be fair here. Let's read what Adam Clark, the strong Arminian, says about this verse, which says that God wants everyone to be saved. Clark says this, quote, In the face of such a declaration, how can any Christian soul suppose that God ever unconditionally and eternally reprobated any man? Those who can believe so, one would suppose, can have little acquaintance either with the natures of nature of God or the bowels of Christ. Well, I guess I don't have any acquaintance with the nature of God or the bowels of Christ. Mr. Clark, this is what I would say to the dear doctor, to the entrenched Arminian. This is what I would say, okay? In the face of such a declaration that God desires all men to be saved, how can any Christian soul suppose that God ever sends anybody to hell? If he wants everybody to get saved, then why is there a hell? In fact, why aren't the universalists more consistent than you Arminians? Now, you're so worried about that God's not just and not loving because he He has an elect. He has some in the elect and some in the reprobate, and that's unfair and unjust and ungodly and, and, and doesn't show the loving nature of God. Well, how about hell? How does that deal with you? You know, why? if hell's there, don't you have the same argument? That how can a just God create a hell for people to go to? Sounds pretty similar to me. And so that's why I always think universalists, even though they're wrong because the Scripture clearly says they're wrong because there is a hell. But nonetheless, they're more consistent than Arminians are, in my humble opinion. The NIV incidentally translates everyone as all men who wants all men to be saved. That avoids the, well, to translate all men, you can translate all men as many men, wants many men to be saved which would avoid the universal universalist problem. All can That word, the Greek word for all, can mean lots and lots of, a great majority of, but not necessarily every individual. I have done a word study on all so much because it shows it comes up all the time. 
excuse me for using that word, all there all the time, does that mean a majority of the time or many times? Does it mean every time without exception all the time? The word is used in a loose sense. You've got to nail it down. Well, here it's talking about all kinds of men. Or at the worst, it could mean who wants a lot of people to be saved, to come to the knowledge of the truth. At any rate, this is one of the Arminians' favorite verses, and I don't think it passes muster, at least not with me, because of the context. He's talking about all kinds of people, kings and those in authority. He wants all people. He wants people from all those groups to come to the knowledge of the truth and get saved. We go down to verse 5, 1 Timothy 2. For there is one God and one mediator between God and humanity, Christ Jesus, himself human. What's the for therefore? For there is one God? Well, probably, or maybe, Paul is now defining the truth which he expressed, which he is expressing in verses 5 and 6. Because there is one God and one mediator between God, humanity, Jesus Christ, who gave himself a ransom for all. So he's just introducing that fact. It could be he's referring back to the end of verse Four, which says God wants everyone to come to the knowledge of the truth. And now, because for there is one God and mediator, we can now come to the knowledge of the truth. Not exactly sure what he put the, the, the for therefore. For there is one God and one mediator. Now, mediator, this is a nice verse for all those today who jabber tolerance. No, there needs to be a mediator between God and humanity because God is angry at humanity. Extremely angry, wrathful. And so we need a mediator to stand between this holy God and a needy people, as the commentator Ellison says. If you want to find out about this mediatorial aspect of Jesus, we read Hebrews 7, 8, and 9, the three chapters, and we read all about Jesus being our high priest. Now, we need a mediator. Why? Because humanity is sunk in sin and headed for destruction. That's why we need a mediator. A mediator is one whose office it is to reconcile two enemies, as Clark says. And before we were saved, we were God's enemies. And all those who are not saved today are the enemies of God. The scripture clearly says this, Romans 5.10. For if, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his Son, then how much more, having been reconciled, we will we be saved by his life? So Paul says that we Christians were enemies before we got saved. Now Paul says here in verse 5, 1 Timothy 2, that Jesus Christ, the mediator, is human, himself human. Let me read it again. Verse 5, for there is one God and one mediator between God and humanity, Christ Jesus, himself human. Now this verse shows that Jesus is God and human at the same time. The hypostatic union, the divinity, the divine nature, and the human nature of Christ sitting right here in this verse. Why would Paul mention that at this point? A couple of options. This is from the commentator Ellison. Paul could be jabbing at the Gnostic types who were denying Jesus' humanity. Remember in 1 John, for example, that which our eyes saw and our hands handled. John is trying to say that Jesus is truly human. And Docetus, which mixed in with all sorts of Gnostic heresies, because the Gnostics said the body was evil. And so Docetus said, well, Jesus didn't really have a body because that would be evil. Jesus wouldn't have an evil body. So he was a ghost. No, that could be why Paul mentions this. No, because remember, he's facing the, all kinds of heresies at Ephesus, and I'm sure Gnostic heresies were some of the heresies he was facing. And he's, So he's emphasizing, no, Jesus is human. Ain't nothing wrong with a human body. It wasn't created evil, like you Gnostics are saying. That could be, could be that Jesus is referring to, that Paul is referring to Jesus as the second man, Adam being the first man and Jesus as the second man. I think he's fighting against Gnostic tendencies myself. 
At any rate, to be a mediator, it's necessary to be human because you've got two sides at the negotiating table. You've got God and man. Ooh, that's not so good because man is so sinful. Jesus says, okay, well, I'm a man, so I can represent men. And I'm God, so I can represent the God side. And so we'll have this little negotiation, and I'm going to say, okay, well, when God wants to destroy mankind, Jesus will, say, will interpose himself between God and man and say, wait a minute, God, avert your wrath because I paid for all the sins of mankind. So that mediator is a, is a, great, a great truth that's stated here in verse 5, 1 Timothy 2. Now in verse 6, 1 Timothy 2, Paul says, referring to Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all, a testimony at the proper time. Jesus gave himself willingly. He came down and laid down his life. Nobody forced him to do it. God the Father didn't force him to do it. Let's read Matthew 20, 28. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life, a ransom for many. So when Paul in verse Timothy 2, 6 talks about Jesus giving himself a ransom for all, notice that he's, he's reflecting what Jesus said in Matthew 28. Notice in Matthew 20, 28, I just noticed this. Jesus said a ransom for many. And in verse 2, 6, it's a ransom for all. Once again, showing that all can mean many, a lots of, doesn't necessarily have to mean every individual person or every individual thing. Here's another scripture, John 10, verses 17 through 18, talking about Jesus willingly laying down and giving his life for us sinners. Verse 17, John 10, this is why the Father loves me, because I am laying down my life, so I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own. It wasn't the Romans, it wasn't the Jews that took Jesus' life from him. He voluntarily went up there to give his life for the sins of mankind. I have the right to lay it down, and I have the right to take it up again. I have received this command from my Father. Okay, so Jesus as willingly giving himself up as a ransom. What is a ransom? The ransom is a purchase price for slaves. If you had a friend that you wanted to not be a slave anymore, you could pay the owner a certain amount of money, and the slave would be bought out of slavery, and the price that was paid to the former owner would be called the ransom price. This, of course, happened when people got a soldier got defeated in a war, they didn't have POW camps. They sold in, they sold the captured soldiers into slavery. Or at poverty sometimes, if somebody didn't have any money, they would sell their sons or their daughters into slavery. Then when they got money, they could buy them back out, and that's called redemption. It's a wonderful, and it's a wonderful metaphor because how wonderful it is to be bought out of slavery. Now, notice that the English word for for is ambiguous. He gave himself a ransom for all. For can mean for the benefit or on behalf of someone else or for the benefit of someone else. So... The verse could read this way, he gave himself a ransom for the benefit of all who believe in him. Or, for can have the meaning of, in substitute of. So the verse would read like this, Jesus gave himself a ransom in substitute for all who believe in him. Now, the Greek word there is antilutron, and anti means instead of. The If it had had the prefix huper, Hooperlutron, it would be on behalf of, but anti, it's anti, which means instead of. So the emphasis here is on Christ's substitutionary death, as Ellison says. So we read it this way, Jesus gave himself a ransom as a substitute for all. Substitutionary atonement, there it is. Now the all there brings up questions of limited versus unlimited atonement, because the Arminians will say, oh, how can we have limited or peculiar atonement? 
an atonement that's just for the elect and not for the non-elect too, because it says Jesus gave himself a ransom for all. Well, I love this argument because I believe the limited atonement people have it all over the unlimited atonement people, but we can't get into that here. The answer, though, for people who believe in limited atonement, just such as I do, is he's talking about all sorts of people, as we've seen all through this chapter. He gave himself a ransom for all, including those nasty magistrates who might not be treating you so good. All sorts of men without exclusion, not all men without exception, not all individual men without exception did Jesus give provide a, an atonement for, a ransom for, but he gave a ransom to all sorts of men without exclusion. Let me just briefly sum that up by saying, it is ironic that those who preach unlimited atonement actually limit the atonement themselves because they say that if God gave his ransom for people who don't believe, well, that means his atonement is ineffective because it didn't work. He died for a non-believer, and yet the unbeliever doesn't believe, so he wasted his effort on the cross for those people. There's lots of other good arguments against unlimited atonement. I won't go into them here. I've got a video, actually, that nobody's watched on the doctrines of grace, and I've got a whole section on goes through all the arguments pro and con on limited atonement on YouTube. Now, Paul says here that Jesus gave himself a ransom for all a testimony at the proper time. What does he mean by proper time? Well, as Ellison points out, God is in control of all historical events, and so he let Jesus appear when certain historical conditions made it perfect for Jesus to come at that time. For example, the Pax Romana, the evangelists could move freely from country to country. There wasn't war, just like I can't go to Syria and Iraq and Iran to see all the ancient Near Eastern cradle of civilization stuff that I would love to see because of all the turmoil. But back then, the evangelists could go anywhere in the Roman Empire. Not a problem. Also, there was a common language over the whole Roman Empire, Koine Greek. Everybody in the Mediterranean world could understand each other. And there was a third historical condition that made conditions ripe for Christianity to spread, because of the obvious bankruptcy of Greek and Roman religions. People were looking for an answer. They were hungry at the time that the Christians appeared, and they gave them the answer. We go now to verse 7 of 1 Timothy 2, and we'll shut this audio down. Paul continues, For this I was appointed a herald. For this. For what? For the truth that God, Jesus gave himself a ransom for all. For all, a testimony at the proper time. And Paul, for that, Paul was appointed a herald to tell everybody about this atonement for people all over the world. For this I was appointed a herald. He was elected and called by God. On the Damascus Road is when it happened. Adam Clark says this, the Greek word for, et for appointed, thing has nothing to do with any imposition of hands by elders. He was appointed by God directly, in other words, not because any elders laid the hands on him, and I have no problem with that. That raises the question, well, do apostles need to be sent out by the imposition of hands by elders today. I got a friend that got himself in a rip-roaring controversy over that, and it made me do a lot of study about how the apostles appointed. No church sent an apostle out. In fact, the famous example in first in Acts 13, where the church at Antioch sent Paul and Barnabas out. No, it did not. It was just a few men. I forgot how many, five or so, six maybe, prophets and teachers in the church at Antioch sent out Paul and Barnabas. They went out on their own. Who decided who was going to go when they had that dispute over Who's going to go, Paul or Barnabas, Barnabas or John Mark? Should they go on the second journey or not go? That was between the apostles. They made that decision. No church had anything to do with that. So apostles are sent out by God directly, and Paul's the classic example of that. No church sent him out. 
He had a direct vision from Christ. And even though apostles today don't have direct visions from Christ, they can be led to go, and the local church ain't supposed to be telling them how you're supposed to go to this country. You're not supposed to be going to that country. I, I'm a little bit sensitive about this because I've seen so much of this because I was around missionaries for years in China, and they constantly had trouble with the folks back home telling them what to do and what not to do. Classic example of this, the last church I was in over there in Wenzhou, China, the sending institution, which was a fundamentalist-type organization, said that no Christian in the church over there should be wearing pants. I mean, come on, this is China. That kind of nonsense. No, Paul was appointed by God directly a herald. That means an evangelist, basically, a preacher, an evangelist. Paul was an evangelist, an apostle, and a teacher all rolled up into one. And we need to remember that because that cuts against the erroneous idea that one person only has one gift. Sometimes we sort of logic chop a little bit. No, you can exercise all kinds of gifts wrapped up in your individual package, and you go and you minister the gospel the best way you can, given the gifts that you have. Now, Paul says, I am telling the truth, I am not lying, that he's appointed a herald and a teacher and an apostle. Herald, preacher, apostle, church planner, teacher, teacher. Why would he tell Timothy, I'm telling the truth, I'm not lying? Well, Timothy knows he's not lying. Why would Paul bother to tell him that? I, I wondered about that. Commentator Ellison gives the answer. Paul knew that the letter was going to be read publicly in church. And he knew that in Ephesus there were false teachers everywhere who would be glad to call Paul a liar. And so Paul emphasizes the fact, hey, you enemies of mine, I am telling you the truth. I'm not lying. He operated as a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and in truth, in faith and his belief in Christ and truth. He imitated his master who said he was the way, the truth, and the light. Now, Paul is talking about he is a teacher of the Gentiles. Why does he say he's a teacher of the Gentiles? It's amazing how many times it shows up that Paul was specially called by God to go to the Gentiles as opposed to the Jews. Now, he did go to the Jews, but he was especially called to the Gentiles. Now, I'm going to read these verses to you. It's just amazing how many verses there are, ten verses that show that Paul was an apostle to the Gentiles. Acts 9.15, But the Lord said to him, Go, for this man is my chosen instrument to take my name to Gentiles, kings and the Israelites. The Gentiles are mentioned too, but but Gentiles are mentioned first. And that's in Jesus' first vision to Paul on the road to Damascus. Acts 22:21. Then he said to me, Go, because I will send you far away to the Gentiles. That's Paul relating that same instance to the Jerusalem mob. Acts 26:17. I will rescue you from the people and from the Gentiles. I now send you to them. That's when Paul had a vision in, when Paul was in jail in a Roman cell there in Jerusalem because the, the Roman commander had to rescue him from the Jewish mob. And Jesus encouraged him and says, I will rescue from the people, these Jewish people, and from the Gentiles, and I will send you to them, to the Gentiles. Romans 1.5, we have received grace and apostleship through him to bring about the obedience of faith among all the nations. Of course, the nations are the Gentiles. Romans 11.13, I am speaking to you Gentiles. In view of the fact that I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry. He calls himself an apostle to the Gentiles. Romans 15.16 to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles, serving as a priest of God's good news. My purpose is that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. A minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles, in Romans 15:16, Galatians 1:16, to reveal his Son in me so that I could preach him among the Gentiles. Galatians 2:7. on the contrary, they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel for the uncircumcised, that means the Gentiles. Ephesians 3, 1 and 2, For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles. 
2 Timothy 4.17, But the Lord stood with me and strengthened me so that the proclamation might be fully made through me and all the Gentiles might hear. That's 10 scriptures right there. And that's not counting the scripture we're on. 1 Timothy 2.7, Paul says, I'm a teacher of the Gentiles. Ladies and gentlemen, I have finished 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1-7. through 7. We'll start in verse 8 and go to verse 15 and finish up chapter 2 in the next audio. In this coming audio, we're going to talk about the way people ought to behave in church, including feminine modesty, including feminine teaching or lack thereof. It's got one of my favorite verses in the whole Bible in there. 1 Timothy 2.12, do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. Why is it my favorite verse? Because it stands headlong against the feminist onslaught on our families, on our church, and on our society. So I hope you stay tuned for that scripture, for that uh, audio, and I hope you enjoyed this one.